This reading is taken from Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 48. Now this is about when Jesus warns about preparing for his coming, or as the message puts it, when the master shows up. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming, and he then begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That servant, who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants, will be beaten with many blows but the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. About four or five years ago, a certain bank marked 20 years of trading by holding a celebratory event at a racecourse. Prior to the event, employees had been warned that normal standards of behaviour and conduct would apply. But in the event, uh, Mr Jones and Mr Brown had a falling out. Uh, Both employees had been drinking before and after and during the event. There was an incident between them in which Mr Brown kneed Mr Jones in the leg and Mr Jones licked Mr Brown's face. Then later in the evening, having seen Mr Jones with his sister, Mr Brown kneed Mr Jones again. And Mr Jones then responded by punching Mr Brown in the face. After the party, Mr Brown sent Mr Jones text messages, including threats to rip his head off. Um, The bank took disciplinary action against both employees. Mr Jones was dismissed for gross misconduct, while Mr Brown received a final written warning. The names are changed, but the stories are true. Such incidents are used 
uh, to draw employees' attention to the hazards of misbehaving at events like the office Christmas party, where you are expected to conduct yourself in a way that is appropriate for an employee. Drinking to excess, getting into a fight, can and is construed as most gross misconduct and can result in summary dismissal. And in drawing up contracts, employers are encouraged to give very specific examples about the kind of behaviour that comes into the category of gross misconduct because that gives employees a very clear warning about what is unacceptable behaviour and what the consequences of that will be. So if, if as an example of gross misconduct, uh, getting drunk and fighting is listed, you haven't got a leg to stand on. If you do that at the office Christmas party, you are up for summary dismissal. Jesus gives his disciples a very similar a word of warning about what is unacceptable behaviour on the part of those who follow him. And he tells the story of a group of servants who've been assigned the task of welcoming their master home after he's been out on the tiles at a wedding. The clock ticks past midnight, past one, past two. There's still no sign of the boss coming home. Clearly it's been a very good party. One of the servants has been drinking. And as the drink gets the better of him, he starts to quarrel with his fellow servants, then becomes violent, attacking not just the, the, the blokes, but the girls who are on duty with him. And at that moment, the master walks in and is understandably angry. The servant is immediately dismissed from his position. Worse than that, he's cut into pieces and banished to the place reserved for untrustworthy people. People debate about what to make of being cut into pieces and then being banished uh, to a place for untrustworthy, faithless people. How literally should the language be taken here? Is he, is he sawed in two and then condemned to hell? Uh, whatever you make of it, it is a drastic response uh, to the crime of getting drunk and getting into a fight. Does the sentence seem unwarrantably harsh to you? I have to say it does a bit to me. Jesus talks about being in a position of trust. The servant knew exactly how he was supposed to behave. Had he not known, well, that would have been taken into consideration as a mitigating factor. The principle is clear. If you know what you need to do and don't do it, you'll get a good thrashing. If you do something wrong and you genuinely had no idea that you were overstepping the mark, well, you'll get away with a light beating. That kind of language really jars with us. It makes us feel extremely uncomfortable. Is that really how God treats his servants? I think what we need to understand is that Jesus is entering in to the world of master-slave relationships in the first century. And he is caricaturing how slaves behave and how they were treated as a vivid way of making the point, simply, how you behave matters. And what you do has consequences. I think the language is deliberately over the top and shouldn't be taken literally. That's certainly the case in terms of the punishment for misbehaviour, but also look at the rewards for performing your duties correctly. What happens to those servants who are still awake to welcome their master at whatever hour of the night it is when he finally rolls in? 
the master will put on servants' clothes. He will sit his servants down at the table and serve them a meal himself, waiting on them hand and foot. In your dreams. That would never, ever have happened in the real world. Or what about the servant who does such a good job that he's put in charge of the master's entire estate? No way. An indulgent master would say to the servants, you can go to bed, which is what they've been waiting for, the last thing they want is to stay up for an extra meal. This is, this is exaggerated language, both in terms of the reward and in terms of the punishment. It's said for effect. I think we get hung up sometimes, well, Jesus said this, we've got to, so we've got to take it seriously. I think a lot of the time, Jesus used vivid, hyperbolic imagery to make a point. That's what made him such a fantastic person to listen to. He's using satire here. And one definition of satire is the use of humour, irony, exaggeration or ridicule to expose and criticise people's stupidity or vices. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. You get drunk, you get into a fight, that is not the way that God's servants are expected to behave. You've got it coming to you. And one of the reasons why Jesus was such a popular speaker was because he was really good at painting incongruous verbal images to make a serious point. So this business of a master serving the servants a meal or or cutting the servant in pieces, it's gruesome, it's incredible. In some sense it operates at the language of Monty Python humour. And we get hung up on what's going on in terms of rewards and punishments meted out to obedient or disobedient servants. Why should the master sit his servants down at a meal at three in the morning instead of just sending them to bed? Or why should he cut this servant in pieces? Those aren't the questions we should be asking. What's the point Jesus is trying to make? He's not trying to show how God will reward good behaviour or punish bad behaviour. All that absurd, over-the-top stuff about rewards and punishments is to drive the point home that it matters how you behave. And what you do has consequences. And how are we to behave? We are to behave like servants waiting for their master to come home. We need to stay awake. We need to stay focused. We need to get on with our fellow servants. We need to get on with doing our jobs. Well, you might say, isn't that blindingly obvious? Why go to all those lengths to make such blindingly obvious points and tell those incredible stories? Perhaps there are two ways, reasons why Jesus sets about it the way he does. One is simply that telling stories like this brings it home. It states the blind in the obvious in a way that is entertaining, memorable, and thought-provoking. Jesus could just have said, while I'm not around, I want you to stay focused, get on with what you're supposed to be doing, and get on with each other while you're about it. It makes the point, but it doesn't really stick in quite the same way as the stories Jesus told do. He chose to make precisely those points by painting a colourful verbal picture. You go to Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Precisely the same point is made in black and white. It's spelt out. The grace of God which brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, 
and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's spelt out there in black and white precisely what Jesus was talking about in a way that we can understand. But it's not vivid. It's a bit ponderous. It's a bit cumbersome. The material is there, waiting. The need to live upright, self-controlled and godly lives while we wait. But these words don't engage the imagination the way that Jesus did. They don't make us stop and think, what is he on about? What is the point that we should take on board from this? And it's Jesus' way of teaching that causes us to ponder and turn over in his mind, what did he mean? And as we do that, thinking about what he said becomes part of our thinking, and in that way it becomes part of how we behave. But the other reason why perhaps Jesus told an elaborate story like this to make a blindingly obvious point is that because for all that the point is blindingly obvious, we're not very good at putting it into practice. We're not very good at staying focused in our work. We're not very good at being self-controlled. We're not even very good at getting on with each other all of the time. But his stories bring home the point that there is a very practical aspect to belonging to Jesus. And eating to excess, drinking to excess, getting drunk, getting into fights, they're not really the kind of things that he expects of us as his followers. It's easy for us to let things slide a little bit, to take our eye off the ball, to stop acting like we are servants on duty all the time, 24 hours a day, actually. Uh, It doesn't matter how we behave, we tell ourselves. Can't be bothered. And it's just that that lowering of standards for ourselves that can get us into trouble. We know that Jesus said he's coming back one day, but let's face it, it's been a very long time, hasn't it? So after this time, we kind of lose our sense of accountability, of expectation, of readiness, of the sense that we will be called to give an account of our lives when he does get back. But whatever hour he comes, whatever year he comes, at that moment, we will be called to give an account. Our lives will come under scrutiny. And what will he find? Will he find us faithful, hard-working servants who've got on with the job or with each other and with each other? Or will he find us, well, couldn't be bothered, really. And so, drinking to excess, arguing with each other, not really applying ourselves to his work. The question we need to ask ourselves before he gets back is, how are we serving him? Are we being faithful in the tasks he's given us to do? Are we getting on with our fellow servants? Have we kept the lamp of our own faith and commitment burning brightly over the years? When Jesus comes back and we're called into his presence, what will his assessment be of the ways in which we've served him? Thought-provoking questions, all raised by Jesus' word pictures of the servants waiting for his master's re- their master's return. Put yourself in their shoes. How should you be behaving? How are you behaving? Is there a discrepancy? But let me close by taking you back to the beginning of the first passage that we read this morning. Jesus said, be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. In this coming week, what does it mean for you to be dressed 
ready for service. Jesus is not inviting you to spend this coming week in an armchair with your feet up. What is he calling you to do? Is he calling you to use one of Alison's Lent booklets and to go into the week ready and asking for help to, to have a conversation with someone about church or about your faith? Is he calling you to use uh, the, 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 the roads to pray for that, perhaps to walk down it to pray for people there? Is he calling you to, to use the new prayer diary that we put together and to pray each day along the lines we're all asked to pray together for the same kind of thing at Brighton Road Baptist Church? Is there a ministry in church he's asking you to exercise? Is he calling you to work for you in a particular way in your place of employment? And what lamp is he calling you to keep burning? Is it the lamp of faith? Is it the lamp of prayer? Is it the lamp of hope? The lamp of love for Jesus or for other people? So, what will it mean in practice for you to live every day this coming week for Jesus? For your life to belong to him? For you to be active in the work of his kingdom and engaged in his service? What resources has he allocated to you and how much does he expect you to use them? Take stock. I am the Lord's servant. What task has he assigned for me this week? Remember, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. From everyone who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Lord, you have entrusted each of us with a key role in the business of your kingdom. Help us. Inspire us. Enable us to give of our best so that as each of us does our best and we work together, we can make a real difference in this week for you. Help us to be your servants.